invite you to grab your Bible or grab a pew Bible and turn to the book of Philippians. We're in the home stretch here of our series in Philippians. We're in Philippians 4, the last chapter of this book, of this letter. Philippians 4, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read in, starting in verse 2. Before I do, I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's always true and unwavering. Thank you that it is an anchor in what sometimes feels like an unstable world. Thank you that it is an expression of your love for us and it functions as a guide to us. Thank you that your word is living and active. It's not a dead letter from Paul that we're reading, but it's your holy word. And thank you that it's powerful, and it does have the power to shape us and change us, even as we read it, when we read it by faith and with the help of your Spirit. And so I pray that you would make your book live to me. I pray you'd make your book live to us as we read it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Philippians 4, I'm starting in verse 2, and I'm only reading through verse 7. Short passage this morning. I entreat Euodia... And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I heard a well-known mystery author interviewed one time, and uh, she was basically the question, she was asked, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you, how do you keep track of all the different characters and all the different plot points and all the twists and turns and weave them together and make it all come together at the end for a conclusion that makes sense and is satisfying and is surprising, keeps everyone guessing until the end? How do you do it? And her answer was, well, I start at the end, and then I work my way backwards. And I thought, well, that, that's an interesting answer. I, as I pictured the way she did it, I pictured that she just proceeded normally from the start and then uh, invented it as she went and hoping that she could figure it all out and make it all fit together in the end. But that's not how she did it. She the whole time knew exactly where she was going because she started at the end. She knew where it ended and then she worked backwards in order to make sure that she got there. That is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start at the end of our text, the last verse of the text, and then we're going to work our way back and see how we got there. The end of our text is Philippians 4.7. That's the last verse that I read. Philippians 4.7 is a well-known verse. It's a verse that says this, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and will guard your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses 
all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Who doesn't want that? That's lovely, right? That's beautiful. The peace of God guarding our hearts, guarding our minds. What a lovely image. What a lovely promise. So the question is, I know that we all want that, right? We, we, we don't all have the same taste about everything. I get that. But we all want that. We all want the peace of God guarding our minds, guarding our hearts. So how do we get there? How do we get that? How do we get to the place where we're experiencing God's peace guarding us, guarding hearts, guarding minds? Well, Paul tells us in this passage. The verses that come before explain how you get there. There's three things in this brief passage that Paul mentions that will lead to the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds. Three things that I see. Number one, agree in the Lord. That's the first thing he says, agree in the Lord. Number two, rejoice in the Lord. And number three, pray to the Lord. If we're doing those three things, agreeing in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, praying to the Lord, then the peace of God which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so we're just going to take a little time this morning and briefly look at each of those three exhortations. Number one, agree in the Lord. That, that phrase, agree in the Lord, comes straight from the text. It's from verse 2. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. All right, so who are these two people? They're mentioned by name. Not a whole lot of people get mentioned by name in the New Testament, but they do. So who are they? Well, we don't know a ton about them, but we know some things. We know that Euodia and Syntyche were women. Uh, we know that because those are female names, and we also know that because Paul explicitly refers to them as women. We also know that these women served alongside of Paul in ministry. They served in some sort of leadership capacity. They were leaders in the early church. We know that because in verse 3, Paul says, they have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Okay, so they're women, they're leaders in the church who labored specifically alongside of Paul in the gospel. And we know that Paul believes that their names are written in the book of life which means, that's his way of saying, that they are true believers, true Christians who are part of the family of God by grace. Names written in the book of life. And we know that these two women who have served alongside of Paul and who are true believers are currently in some sort of conflict with each other. That's what he says. We also know that Paul considers their disagreement a big deal. Such a big deal that he mentions them by name in this letter that was written to the whole church at Philippi, which Paul knows is going to be read publicly to the whole church when they assemble. He mentions them by name. He doesn't send them a separate postcard for them, you know, privately, let them work it out. He mentions them by name. If they have a problem, everyone has a problem. If they have a personal problem, it affects the whole church. And so he raises it to the whole church in this letter. And finally, we know that Paul doesn't think they're going to be able to work it out on their own. Which is probably why they didn't get personal postcards. He invites someone else to get involved to help him out. Verse 3, right? He says, I ask you, faithful companion, help these women. 
They need help right now. They, they, they have a task ahead of them that they're not going to be able to do on their own. So help them out. All right, that's what we know. That's all right there in the text. What we don't know is what it is they can't agree about. Not a hint, not a clue. We don't know. I don't know what they're arguing about. We don't know what the conflict is about. And apparently, that's not the point. Paul seems more con- concerned that there is a disagreement than what the disagreement is about. Right? He doesn't just write to them and say, well, here's the answer. Here's the right answer. Right? So they better get on the same page. No. He doesn't even mention the issue. He just mentions the disagreement. And he says they're going to have to work it out, and they're going to have to agree in the Lord, and they're going to need help doing that. And it's important. And it's going to affect the whole church. Now, we know that Paul did care about issues. It's not like issues weren't important to him. His letters are filled with points of doctrine. His letters are filled with theological explanation about truth and falsehood, what's right and what's wrong. That mattered to Paul. Issues mattered to Paul, right? He writes about what honors God, what doesn't honor God. But in this case, Paul seems to be more concerned about the conflict itself than the issue, right? He's saying that this conflict is a big deal. Euodia and Syntyche had better figure it out had better figure out a way to agree in the Lord. In a way, Paul, Paul's playing the role of a concerned spouse here, sort of. Right? You know that scenario where one spouse is experiencing a medical symptom that's potentially serious? And for the sake of this illustration, let's just, let's just say it's a stubborn husband, because so often it is. Let's imagine that the husband has started feeling, I don't know, sharp chest pains on the left side. (laughs) And the wife says, you know, you really need to get that checked out. (laughs) That's not nothing. (laughs) And the husband says, oh, I'm fine. (laughs) It's nothing. It'll go away on its own. And she says, well, actually, you're not a doctor. (laughs) And maybe it's not nothing. So I'm booking the appointment. All you need to do is show up, right? I'll book it. This is fresh on my mind because Marco and I had one of these conversations just this past week. Uh, Not about my chest. I'm feeling fine. Uh, About my teeth. (laughs) I think it's ridiculous that people are expected to go to the dentist every single year. Come on. That should be like a once a decade thing. So uh, she took the initiative. She set the appointment. (laughs) Sent me a text saying when it was knowing that if I really didn't want to go, I would have to take the initiative and call and cancel, otherwise we'd be paying for it, which I did. <laughs> Anyways, Euodia uh, and Syntyche, uh, they, uh, Paul, Paul is playing this role of a concerned spouse, saying to the church at Philippi, I love you, I love you, I love you. And something's not right with you right now, and it matters. And perhaps the church at Philippi is, is, is inclined to say, ah, oh, it's nothing. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And Paul is saying, no, 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 but it is. It is a big deal. It is a big deal, and you need to address it. It's a big deal when members of the same church have a disagreement, and you need to deal with it now. So I'm calling you out by name. I'm calling you out, and I am soliciting someone to get involved and help 
because I want to make sure that you don't ignore it. I want to make sure that you deal with it. Otherwise, what Paul is saying here is that it's not just these two women, but your whole church is going to suffer. You know, like in, in our illustration, if one member of a family doesn't take care of his own health, it's not just that person that suffers, right? The whole family suffers if one person doesn't take care of their health. So the phrase that Paul uses here is important. He doesn't just say that, well, they need to agree. Just agree. He says you need to agree in the Lord. That's the phrase, agree in the Lord. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means, for, for one thing, what it means is that we don't come to these disagreements with this mindset. Come into a disagreement saying, well, I'm right and they're wrong. And so the only way we're going to agree is if they come to see it my way, right? Because I'm right, right? So we don't, we, 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 we don't want to be wrong. I, I can't agree with them. I'm not going to go on that side. So if ever we're going to agree, they're going to agree with me. Okay, that, that approach to conflict, that doesn't honor the other person, and, and it doesn't honor the Lord. Until I have taken the time to understand the reasons that someone holds the view they hold, I have not earned the right to disagree with them. I'll say that again. Until I have taken the time to actually understand the reasons that someone holds the view that they hold, I have not earned the right to disagree with them. And that means I'm probably going to have to talk to them, and I'm probably going to have to ask questions and listen to them in order to understand them. Okay, well, let's say that step's been taken. What then? Well, to agree in the Lord means that when we have a disagreement, we do so with Bibles open. Agree in the Lord means Bibles open, seeking to understand what the Lord has said on this issue. And agreeing beforehand as one of the rules that we will submit to whatever the Bible says, even if it says something that makes us uncomfortable or says something that's difficult. Okay, having said that, that sounds nice. But of course, on some topics... The Bible hasn't said anything, right? If we're disagreeing about the color of the carpet or about the type of coffee to serve or the best version of the Bible or what type of music best lends itself to worship or whether we should sing old songs or new songs, the Bible's not going to answer those questions. The Bible doesn't weigh in on those questions. A lot of times, those questions come down to a matter of personal preference, in which case, agreeing in the Lord is going to look like honoring the preferences of others instead of insisting on my own way. It may involve finding common ground. It may involve a compromise that honors and respects both sides. But it will definitely involve a commitment to conduct that conversation in a way that respects others and honors the Lord. In other cases, the Bible has spoken on the issue. And agreeing in the Lord will mean studying what the Bible has to say and submitting to it. But, having said that, sometimes, even after we've studied what the Bible has to say, we don't agree on our interpretation of what it means. Right? And that's complicated, right? In those cases, the problem is not with the Bible, right? We know the Bible is God's word and the Bible is not in error. But the, pri the problem is with us. Because we are fallible, the Bible's not, but we are, and our interpretations 
can be wrong. And in those cases, we're going to need the Spirit to grant us Christ-like patience and forbearance as we seek the Lord's will together. And we're going to need to commit to engaging in that process in a way that honors and respects the views of others. And that is not easy, but with the Lord's help, it is possible. What Paul is saying here is that when those disagreements occur, then for the sake of the health of the church, we need to deal with them. We cannot ignore them. That's not healthy. And we need to do it in a way that respects one another and honors the Lord because the health of the church is at stake. And not only is the health of the church at stake, but our witness to the world is at stake as well. Right? If we... If we in the church can't stand the sight of each other, then how are we going to look the world in the eye? By God's grace and with his help, we need to agree in the Lord for the sake of our own health and for the sake of our witness. And I know it's hard, but when we're able to do that, we will experience the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what it says. All right, that's point number one about agreeing in the Lord. The second point is to rejoice in the Lord. Not only are we to agree in the Lord, but we are to rejoice in the Lord. This, as you know, I'm sure, is a command. It's a command. Verse 4, which just about everybody who's a Christian knows this verse, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it, rejoice. The fact that God can command us to rejoice tells us that rejoicing is not the victim of our emotions. It is the servant of our will. I'll say that again. Rejoicing is not the victim of our emotions. Rejoicing is the servant of our will. You don't have to wait until you feel like rejoicing to rejoice. You can choose to rejoice and then rejoice. It's a decision of the will oftentimes. We all know that God calls us to rejoice always. We know that verse. It's one of those biblical commands that's easy to say and hard to do. There's a lot like that. Uh, So I'll just, I don't know exactly what more to say about that than to say that we're all supposed to be rejoicing and we all find it hard to do sometimes. So all I'm going to do on this point is just give an illustration from history of someone who faithfully obeyed this command. I think of this example all the time. It's from one of my heroes of the faith. Her name is Sarah Edwards. A lot of pastors that I know have her husband as their hero of the faith, Jonathan Edwards. My hero is his wife, Sarah. Sarah's husband, Jonathan, um, Jonathan Edwards was probably, arguably, the greatest theologian that North America has ever produced. I, I definitely think that. Uh, he, he lived in the colonies uh, in New England just before the United States became independent. Um, he was 54 years old when he died. At the time that he died, smallpox was a huge problem. Um, and back then, Jonathan Edwards, he was president of Princeton Seminary. He voluntarily um, received an experimental inoculation. They were just trying to figure out how can we protect ourselves against smallpox, and they came up with the idea, well, we could give ourselves a small amount of it. We would be then inoculated against it. They were still working out the science of that, trying to figure it out. And so he said, all right, I'll volunteer. 
give it to me. And so he got the inoculation, but instead of that protecting him against smallpox, he actually contracted it, and he died. He had been perfectly healthy prior to that, uh, but he died. And so a week and a half later after his death, I mean, his wife Sarah is just, just totally caught off guard, had no expectation that she would be losing her husband. Everything seemed good and right. Uh, and she gets the message that her husband has now passed away because he voluntarily chose to receive this inoculation. And so she writes this letter to their daughter, Esther. Uh, we have the letter. We know that this is what it said. She writes to Esther. Now, their daughter, Esther, had only six months previously lost her own husband, had died. So she's a young widow now, Esther is, grieving the loss of her husband six months ago, and now she just finds out that her father has passed away as well. And so uh, her mom, Sarah, writes this letter, and here's what it says. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. Now, if you know, those are quotes from the Bible. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. And he has made me to adore his goodness that we had your father for so long. But my God lives and my God has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband, your father, has left for us. We are all given to God. And there I am and there I love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. See, I, when I read that letter, I read rejoicing. I read pain. I read a dark cloud. But I read rejoicing. Rejoicing always doesn't mean that you never feel sad. It doesn't mean that the dark cloud of God's providence never hangs over your head. But it does mean that our God lives and that he has our heart. And we can therefore rejoice in all things, knowing that he holds us in his hand and he is able to make all things work for good for those who love him. And since the letter of Philippians is written to a church and not to individuals, this command serves as a reminder that we collectively, as a church, are called to rejoice in the Lord always. So often this verse is taken and applied to individuals, right? You're having a hard day and someone, oftentimes insensitively, Reminds you of that verse and says, hey, rejoice in the Lord always, which is not usually helpful in the moment. But we often think to apply that verse to individuals, right? God's telling me to rejoice in the Lord always. He's telling you. But actually, this command is written to a whole church. The whole church at Philippi was commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. We, Ebenezer, are commanded collectively as a church to rejoice in the Lord always. We are called to rejoice during times of plenty and joy, and we are called to rejoice during times of challenge and struggle. And usually we're in the middle of both of those at the same time, depending on what issue or angle you look at. We are called to rejoice always. And if by God's grace we're able to do this, well then the peace of God which surpasses understanding, 
will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. One final point, we are to agree in the Lord, we are to rejoice in the Lord, and we are to pray to the Lord. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, be made known to God. These verses, I mean, these are familiar words, right? This is like the greatest hits of Philippians. These, 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 these verses, most of us have heard them throughout our whole lives. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Let your requests be made known to God. It's not as if he doesn't know them, right? You've never informed God of anything, right? When you, when you go to God in prayer, you're not giving him new information. And yet we're told to make our requests made known to God. We're told to tell God what's happening in our heart, in our mind, in our church, in our family. To make that known to God. According to the Bible, prayer accomplishes all kinds of things. God has chosen. He didn't have to do it this way, but he has chosen in his sovereign providence to use the prayers of his people as the means by which he accomplishes his will on earth. How does that work? I don't know. I don't understand that. But I know that that's what the Bible teaches, that prayer is powerful and that our sovereign God works through the prayers of his people to accomplish his will. It didn't have to work that way. He could bypass the prayers of his people, but he chooses to use the prayers as his means by which he gets things done. I don't know how that works, but I believe by faith that it does. But according to this verse, when we pray, not only is God using our prayers to accomplish his purposes, right? We're participating in God's work in the world. But also when we pray, God's accomplishing something in us. We're told to pray about everything and to do so with thanksgiving and that by so doing, we are released from having to feel anxious about anything. In fact, in this verse, Paul contrasts the state of being anxious with the state of being prayerful. Right? They're, they're opposites. He says, don't be anxious, but instead of being anxious, take everything to the Lord in prayer. It's as if the very process of bringing our concerns to the Lord in prayer, it has the effect of transferring those burdens off ourselves and onto the Lord. Right? We come to the Lord in prayer. We say, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Lord, I'm upset about this. Lord, I'm concerned about this. Lord, I'm, I'm worried about this. Lord, I'm losing sleep over this. And he says, well, th- well, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for bringing those struggles to me. And I want you to know you don't have to carry them. I'll take them. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'll take them. When we entrust our concerns and problems to the Lord in prayer, it relieves us of the feeling that there are problems and that we have to solve them. And it helps us to not be anxious. Now, is that a permanent solution? Probably not. If you're like me, then those concerns will probably come back. That's why we don't just pray about something once and then forget about it, most of us. But whenever we feel anxious about anything, we bring it to the Lord. In fact, feeling anxious should be the trigger that causes us to pray and bring it to the Lord. Right? Lord, here I am again. Here I am again praying about this same thing again. Because you know what? I'm anxious about it again. So would you lift it up and off of me again? And he does over and over again. And maybe we think that he gets tired of hearing the same thing over and over from us, but he doesn't. 
We might be like that, but he's not like that. We're supposed to bring everything to him by prayer, with supplication and thanksgiving. It's prayer that will help us not be anxious. It's prayer that will help us rejoice in the Lord. And it's prayer that will help us agree in the Lord. So those are the three things. Agree in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, pray to the Lord. And when we do that, then the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the phrase, peace of God, the peace of God, it's a possessive phrase, the peace of God. It means the peace that God himself possesses, the peace that God has, he is willing to give to us. The peace of God. He's he's eager to share his peace with us. He's generous with it. And this short passage explains how we can experience that. And just one more reminder, the pronouns in this verse are plural, not singular. Not you as individuals, but you collectively as a church. We can experience the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds when we collectively choose to do these things, when we agree in the Lord, when we rejoice in the Lord, and when we pray to the Lord, we will experience the peace of the Lord guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, I'm, I'm thankful right now at this moment that these famous and well-known verses take the form of imperative, that they are commands. That Paul, by your Spirit, commanded the church at Philippi to agree in the Lord and commanded them to rejoice in the Lord and commanded them to pray to the Lord. And we, see, we receive those as commands from you this morning as well. Those are commands that we want to obey that we sometimes struggle to obey. There are times when we don't want to agree in the Lord or we're not able, feel like we're not able to agree in the Lord. And so I pray for your help, believing that you would not have commanded us to do this if it were not possible by your grace to do so. There are times when we don't feel like rejoicing in the Lord. We don't even feel like we're able to rejoice in the Lord always. And yet I believe with all my heart that you don't issue commands that we're not able by your grace to fulfill. And so I pray for your help that you would help us to rejoice in the Lord. And Lord, sometimes we don't feel like praying to you. We don't feel like bringing all things to you with prayer and supplication because we find prayer boring or we find ourselves too busy to do it or we're skeptical that it makes any difference or whatever whatever our own personal list of reasons is. Uh, but we turn from that now and we recognize that you have commanded us for our own good and for your purposes to bring everything to you in prayer and you have told us that that will help us not to labor under a feeling of anxiousness. And so I pray that you would help us, empower us to be prayerful people. And I thank you that at the end of those commands comes a promise. And so often that's how you operate. You issue commands. But they are followed by promises. And that you promise that your peace, the peace of God, your peace which we don't even fully understand, which surpasses our minds and surpasses our understanding, 
that you will send your peace and it will guard our hearts and it will guard our minds in Christ Jesus. We want that. We're eager for that. And so I pray that you would help us to pursue that by doing the things that you have commanded us to do. In your name, amen.